Coming up on today's show, COVID-19 vaccine trials for children are ongoing. They're a little different from adults. Why? What can we expect? Will we be vaccinating kids soon? We'll get the details around that. Single game sports betting is now allowed in Canada. And are you sitting on a used car you're thinking about selling? Now might be the time people are getting more for their used car than they paid when it was new. We'll tell you why. This is a topic on the minds of many, many people as we get closer and closer to school returning. I think that's the primary driver here. Um, Canada's vaccination effort continues quite successfully, leading the world. That's despite all the noise you hear from the anti-vaccination crowd out there. 80% of eligible Canadians have received their first dose. Of course, one of the big questions going forward is going to be kids. Uh, As you know, nobody under the age of 12 can be vaccinated at this point. When will that change? Will it change? And what does it take to get it to the point where it can change? So let's get some details around that. We're going to chat with Jesse Pappenberg, who is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and medical microbiologist at the Montreal Children's Hospital at the McGill University Health Centre. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. That's my pleasure. So first question here. How important is it to vaccinate kids? We know that, you know, they've largely been the least affected throughout all this. Not to say there have been no serious cases, but by and large, they haven't seen the the severe, serious outcomes that adults have. So how important is it to get kids vaccinated? Well, you're right that we're fortunate in pediatrics that we have been spared in terms of the, some of the, a lot of the serious outcomes seen in adults, especially older adults, and hospitalizations remain relatively infrequent. Uh, but kids still have been greatly affected by the pandemic and certainly by infections that uh, are occurring in pediatrics. And what we know now is there's certainly been a shift in terms of the proportion of people uh, under 20 are, are representing a greater greater proportion of uh, of infections across Canada. So there are two implications for that. One is so the the, the safety of young persons in Canada uh, themselves. And the second part is what is their role in terms of driving community spread uh, of the pandemic strain. Yeah, so we know that vaccination reduces both of those things, obviously. So that's the overwhelming reason to do it would be to reduce community spread and, of course, keep them safe too. Yeah, that's that, that's exactly it. So it's it's about uh, protecting kids from severe outcomes, even though they are less common than in adults. Uh, protecting also their family members or people that are close to them uh, yeah. in terms of direct spread, but then also the role that uh, children, adolescents, uh, and the, the places where they meet them that are really important to their development in terms of schooling and other social activities um, that we need to keep open and we need to have them it, uh, able to interact. It's part of their their healthy development uh, and how do we do that and also protect the rest of the community as well and I think vaccination is a key uh, for protecting our children and protecting uh, those around them. Prior to the vaccination arriving for kids and I assume that it will um, you know for parents who have children under 12 that can't be vaccinated that maybe that's weighing on them you know with me going out now I'm vaccinated and I'm back doing what I used to do and things like that you know do I have a risk of bringing it home to my kids are there certain precautions that parents should be taking or um, where are we at around that right now? Well, uh, you're right that I think that um, uh, there are things that we can do to reduce the risk, even though uh, our youngest children are not yet uh, eligible for vaccination. And certainly with regards to schools, uh, there was a recent study published in in Science that showed that there's not one single intervention that shuts down transmission or eliminates transmissions in the schools. But by performing a bunch of different interventions, uh, you could actually reach uh, a level where uh, people who go to school, who, who work 
work at the school or family members of children who go to school where there is in-person classes mm. have the same risk of acquiring COVID as anybody else in the community. So it's this it's the multiplication of different things that can help reduce risk of transmission in places like schools. So whether it be uh, you know use of masks, whether it be the kids or the the employees, uh, improving ventilation, right. uh, social distancing, cohorting, all these things that we've heard about, none of them is a silver bullet but all of them do help. Combined can help. Okay. Now, in terms of getting vaccines into kids, it's being tested, right? There are trials underway as we speak. Correct. And we're, we're actually expecting results from the trials in children 5 to 11, hopefully in September from Pfizer and Moderna, I believe, as well. And they're going to be applying to Health Canada for uh, licensure uh, or approval uh, for use in this age group in the early fall. So we're definitely looking forward to seeing that, what those results are. Uh, and then for the younger kids, it's, we're, we might have results by the end of the year. We're expecting results by the end of the year for those two to four okay. and possibly even under two years of age, but that might go to early 2021. And the reason, like one of the reasons why it takes longer for these pediatric trials, uh, well, there are actually several reasons. One is that uh, obviously we wanted to make sure that the vaccines worked and were safe in the persons that needed it most right away. So so adults were obviously the first target population. And given the fact that uh, in pediatrics, we have less severe outcomes, as we discussed, we wanted to make sure that the vaccines were safe uh, in adults before we tried testing them in kids. So that was one thing. The second thing is that in younger children, so in the children under age 12, there's actually a dose-finding regimen that's being examined first. So in other words, what is the lowest dose that we can use that will elicit a strong immune response and antibodies and other elements of the immune system uh, that will be equivalent to the immune responses that we saw in adults uh, that have been shown to be protective? So obviously, the the smaller the dose that you give uh, that gives a good immune response, well, if you're able to give a, get away with a lower dose, you're also probably going to wind up getting less of those uh, side effects that we see in terms of you know, local pain at the injection site or feeling of you know, malaise or, or feverish after the, after the dose. Uh, all of these obviously are, 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 are pretty transient, uh, a couple of days within the uh, vaccination and can be managed with uh, uh, supportive measures. And that dosing is sort of the, I mean, when we talk about the testing of these vaccines on children, um, can a lot of the stuff that's already been done in terms of the testing on adults be carried over? Or are you starting from scratch? We're right back to, to square one when it comes to testing the vaccine on kids. Or, you know, I mean, we know they're effective. Can that be applied over to exactly. kids? Yeah, so we, exactly. So the, the, the initial trials done in adults were uh, composed of tens of thousands of participants to prove that the vaccines prevent symptomatic infection uh, or even and severe outcomes and even infection per se. So, uh, uh, so we don't have to start from scratch. And these pediatric trials are actually much smaller. We're talking probably around 2,000 uh, patients per age group. And the idea here is the primary objectives are one, safety. So make sure we're not getting any new types of uh, adverse effects that we hadn't yet seen in adults. And two, uh, uh, it's called an immunogenicity bridging study where all we want to make sure is that we're, we're in the blood tests that we do on these subjects after their vaccination, that we're getting the same type of immune response that we saw in adults. And we've already shown that in adults, that immune response is protective. Right. So we can get away with a smaller trial in kids. And basically just zero in on the dose, which is one of the big questions when it comes to kids. 
Exactly. Um, when I think of vaccines, when I was a kid, I mean, that's when I got all my vaccines. It's when I was a kid. Why is this one different? I mean, were, did those all go through adult testing and, 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 and kid testing too? Or is this, is this somehow different? Because, I mean, we all got them when we were in school, right? That, that's correct. But this is not an unusual way of, of proceeding in vaccines okay. where there would be an indication for both adults and pediatrics. We often start off with the adult population first and then move our way down to pediatrics as we've secured safety and efficacy results in the adult population. We see that when there are new influenza vaccines that are, are developed with new technologies or different formulations. Uh, it's exactly the same thing that's done. Uh, and we move on towards the, the younger groups uh, a little bit later. Um, and the timeline, as you said, hopefully by September, we'll have some early information and then full, complete study results by the end of this year. That's what we're sort of looking at targeting for a timeline? Well, I, I, I think that for the 5 to 11 age group, sometime this fall, we might even see approval from Health Canada, depending okay. on, on, the, on the results. But all, obviously, it's all contingent on, on the, the study showing that the vaccines are safe and effective in kids. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That is Jesse Pappenberg, who is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and medical microbiologist at the Montreal Children's Hospital at McGill University Health Centre. Interesting change, a huge change, really, if you think about the impact this is going to have on sports in Canada. We talked about it before, Bill C-218 has passed, and that allows for single-event betting. You know how sports select works. You can go in and you can, you know, try and put together a list of three or four games or ten games or whatever the case may be and buy your ticket that way. This is different. This is, you can bet on tonight's game. One game, that's it. Um, And that hasn't been allowed in our country until now, and it's going to make some really, really big changes. So to get some insight on what we can expect to see, we're joined by Sherry Bradish, who is a professor of sports business at Ryerson University. Sherry, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time today. No problem. Thank you. Now, before we even start here, we should point out that single event sports betting has been taking place in Canada for a very, very long time. Just, I guess not even illegally in some cases, but uh, just there's been other ways to do it, but now it's legal. That's right. So um, my colleagues and I just did a bit of a deep dive in terms of what it means uh, for the industry. And I think, and you've seen this, and I'm sure you've referenced it, we know um, annually they estimate um, illegal single sports betting uh, reached about $14 billion a year in Canada. How much? The estimates is it's a $14 billion industry, whether it be through uh, offshore betting books and even the black market, so to speak. Unbelievable. Okay, so now do we anticipate now that it's legal in Canada, all of that money will be coming back? Probably not, right? There's still going to be the offshore and the the websites and all the rest, and they're still going to carve out a chunk of that business. But how much do we think this is going to mean in terms of betting within Canada through the legal system? Well, uh, estimates... Uh, not ours, just ones that we've looked at, are easily in the $10 billion impact um, uh, to the industry numbers. And obviously, that's a huge impact in any industry. Ours is a tenth the size of the U.S., so that's significant. Yeah. But I think, you know, we're, North America keeps saying Canada is going to be a really aggressive betting market is what they, they suspect. And I think the other piece why we wanted to look at this, my colleagues and I, is it's always interesting when you get this big, fresh cast inflection when you have an industry that's been so severely hit, yeah. like the Canadian sport industry. So 
what does that mean? And that's just, you know, and coupled with, in particular, the social impact has been and will be a bit of our focus over the next year. So when we talk about this influx of cash, you know, sports teams are looking at this, uh, media looking at this, all kinds of different areas. Where will that money end up? I mean, how is this money going to be spread around once this betting is allowed? I think um, through unofficial and official channels, it seems very much that the industry is still figuring pieces of these out. And to your point, the stakeholders very much, whether it be in particular the pro sports teams and the media properties, and we have two big ones, are still developing their strategies. And I think there was a lot of thought some of them would create their own betting um, platform, but uh, where a, a lot of the financial benefit is to some of these teams in particular who have been really hardly hit by not having tickets to sell in the yeah. last year or so is through partnerships with these betting companies. And so whether it's a points bet or a, a draft king, that is, high, that is going to be arguably replacing, you know, the elite uh, category, sponsored categories in sport. So but- those dollars are projected to be significant because people want to be at the table and they want to be with the big professional sports team. But doesn't it just seem dangerous to have the teams themselves involved with the gambling side of sport? Isn't there always supposed to be some sort of firewall to make sure that the games aren't influenced by the betting? Is that a risk that we're looking at here? Well, and that's part of what we're looking at. And and I'll be fair, I'll, to be, be honest, we've had stakeholders both on the team side and on the media side talk to us about who independently is looking at uh, responsible betting yeah. and, and how are we going to manage that. And we know that there's various um, betting regulatory systems, there's various governmental systems, but uh, there needs to be a bit more long hand at what people are describing the wild, wild west, really, of this new domain that's coming into the marketplace, for sure. And then I think in, if you saw our, our little piece that we did in the conversation, um, sports bettors in particular seen initial research to have a higher propensity um, to develop more addictive behavior. Sure. So, apologize for the background noise, but right. so we're we're aware of um, we're aware of that the profile of the sport better in particular uh, could be particularly troubling. And again, they're just coming back too, right? So when you have this pent up demand, how does that translate? So those are just things we're looking at. Are there? I imagine you know the government will be taking a close look at that. I know there's. There's programs. I don't know how effective they are when you go into a casino or whatever the case may be, but at least they pay at lip service. Is that something that was part of the discussions around Bill C-218? Right. Uh, it definitely was from various stakeholders. Some of the players at the table, so, you know, the score, a Canadian company is already engaged in yep. some North American responsible betting initiatives. Um, so definitely that was part of it. And then we also know from a social impact perspective, there were various amendments to the bill that looked in general at social impacts and concerns of social impacts, one against match fixing, um, and there was some language prayed around that, and the other one against um, and to protect the lotteries that different um, Indigenous uh, spaces held around sport betting. Right, exactly. Yeah, we know that's happening. Um, so, I mean, we're looking at you know, a seismic shift in the landscape here, right? Things could be entirely different in terms of the way pro sports and gambling are handled in our country. 
we don't really know. Is this going to be sort of a wait and see, and we'll have to watch closely how it rolls out and adjust as we go, or or is there a framework in place to try and put some guardrails in? I, there are definitely frameworks in place, and I, I know actively there's some Canadian um, stakeholders that are engaged in conversations with Parliament Hill about how do we place those guardrails in, in place. But again, given the amount of money that's coming in the marketplace, in a marketplace that's particularly strange, we've had different strains, as you know, than than, than North America in sport. Canada has particular strains. It's going to be interesting. And the money seems very different. We looked at when, you know, we could talk about uh, advertising with the legalization of marijuana, et cetera. This is different. This seems very different. Very different money, very different concerns. Yeah. And the size of it seems so much bigger. And I know that's very unquantified, but um, people are commenting this is going to be fill a void that we've had since the 70s and 80s with tobacco money. And that, that to me, is particularly interesting at a time when sport really has to look at all its social constructs across the, the industry. The expectation it could be that big, because we know, I mean, everything was sponsored by tobacco companies back in the 70s. Right? I mean, everything was sponsored by tobacco companies. These companies could be that big and that much of an influence on sports with the money they have available? It, that big for sure. The influence piece, um, you know, it, it fits within that category, right? Like of the big tobacco, how how will those partnerships be built and established yeah. and managed? And then, you know, what, the other thing I think that's interesting we haven't talked about yet is how are these things going to be activated in the market? And our sports bar bars going to be converted to sports yep. bars. And what is that that trading radius look like? And how you know how will how will the you know how will that area um, speak to responsible betting and, and think about it? So it, it's 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 so many different intersects of impact that um, it, this is why we really wanted to dig deep and look at it because it's a you know a significant it's going to be a huge impact on the industry. Yeah, for good and bad, right? And we'll have to see which way that scale tips up uh, eventually. But we have to be aware of the negative. But there's a lot of positives here too. Obviously, if you're in the sports industry, right? Well, I think it offers a lot of, without a doubt, we've heard how much interest yeah, it is. And yeah. across the board, up and down the ladder, people are having conversations. What's our best role in this space? It's going to be interesting. Sherry, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for your time. Take care. Bye. You too. Uh, that's Sherry Bradish, who is a professor of sport business at Ryerson University. you have a used car that you've been thinking of selling, now might be the time to do it. Better than ever, ever before. Uh, Unfortunately, if you're trying to buy a car, uh, you know what that means. It's crazy out there right now. Finding a new vehicle in Canada is really tough to do. And if you find one, sometimes you're on a waiting list. The inventory has just dropped right off the map, and it's because of the microchip processor shortage, primarily. That's the main concern. Um, And what it's meant is people are now shifting their focus to used cars, you know, not 15-year-old clunkers, but cars that are two, three, four years old. And in some cases, you may get what you paid for when you bought it new, maybe even a little bit more. Truth, not making it up. Let's get the details on what's going on out there with James Hancock, who is Director of Business Development for Canadian Black Book. James, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. No worries. So, yeah, I mean, just how crazy have things gotten out there in the used car market? Are people actually getting more than they paid for their vehicle a couple of years later? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In, in some instances, we're, we're seeing uh, ve- uh, vehicles traded in 
you know, one, two years after they purchase them and they're getting uh, ticket uh, MSRP or higher. Most of this is like kind of in Canada, it's the, uh, the pickup trucks and the SUVs that, that we're seeing this, but in some cars we're seeing it as well. Okay. Now, do I have it right? It's just basically you can't get new vehicles. Why are we seeing this sudden shift and, and this massive increase in prices? Yeah, so so it's really related to the new cars you you mentioned. Yeah, uh, when when pen, the pandemic happened, um, automakers shut down their per- production facilities and canceled semiconductor orders. They didn't anticipate that the that the recovery would be so swift, mm-hmm. and therefore they were left kind of stranded without semiconductors um, to facilitate uh, to facilitate their uh, production needs. So that's really what's causing it. And now that there's a a limited supply of new cars right now. It's dwindling day by day. Um, auto uh, auto dealers and consumers are looking for uh, an alternative, and uh, a nearly new, two to four years old, as you mentioned, yeah. is is a great alternative. So, okay, a couple of things there. First, though, what's the timeline on getting you know the production back to where we would expect it to be? Are they saying you know you might have to wait three months, six months, a year, five years? What are they anticipating here? Yeah. So by the time that. Um, the semiconductor plants can get back up to 100% capacity. Uh, we're looking at the end of 2021. And by the time that the automakers fulfill all the back orders and all the cars uh, in parking lots right now without semiconductors, we're looking probably second half of 2022 into 2023. Interesting. Okay, so this is going to be a long-term situation by the sounds of it. In terms of the used cars um, that, you know, I mean, your average consumer trying to buy a car, but it's not just that, right? I mean, car dealerships, rental car agencies, they're also looking for inventory, so they're flooding the market too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, rental rental car companies uh, haven't been able to facilita- uh, facilitate all their new car needs, so they're looking at the, the used car to uh, to buy cars as, as people look to travel. Um, and as you said, it's trucks, SUVs primarily that are seeing the biggest increases here? Yeah, correct. Okay, so if you have a used vehicle that you are thinking about selling, what's the best way of going about it to make sure that you're getting top dollar? Because it's a pretty good time to sell, I would think. Yeah, it's a historical highs, as we mentioned. Uh, the best thing is to make sure that, you know, your service records are up to date. Make sure that your, your car is in pristine condition. Um, if you have any kind of uh, dents and scratches, you may want to want to quickly touch them up and that will help you maximize your value as well as if there's any check engine lights on you know looking at looking at into that and making sure that um that there's no lights on when you when you go to try to trade it in uh will help with the value as well yeah get it in peak condition right um what about trying to buy a vehicle right now i mean should you be looking new should you be looking used i mean what what's the best course of action there yeah right now if you if you need to if you need to uh purchase a vehicle and you're, you're typically a new car buyer um, looking at the, the one to three year old vehicles is a great alternative. Um, they're, they are still in uh, limited supply as as uh, you know consumers uh, can't buy new cars. Yeah. They switch over to the used cars. So if you yeah. really don't care what kind of car you're getting, uh, is there a certain sector? Is there a certain kind of vehicle out there that isn't seeing the massive increase where you might still find a deal? No, we're we're seeing it across the board. Um, <laughs> SUVs are. are you know, 
have the biggest hits, but even even the, the car sector, the sedan sectors are seeing uh, increases. Unreal. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you, I, I've heard reports from people here, listeners telling me, you know what happened is the American car companies, with the dollar being what it is, uh, dealerships in the U.S. that need inventory are coming up to Canada and, and just swamping the auctions and buying up all the vehicles there. Uh, and uh, that's another part of the problem that's contributing to this. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, we've, we've seen an uptick in exports down to the U.S. And that's really because they're, they're, being, uh, they're currently harder hit than we are right now. Our, we, you know, because of lockdown restrictions that we've had in the past few months in some of our key provinces, our new car inventory is not as low as the U.S. In Canada, it's about 25% down, where in the U.S., uh, their new car inventory is about 50% down. So, so they're looking for used vehicles to f- uh, facilitate all their uh, demand, and they're coming across the border with the advantageous exchange rate and, and taking them yeah. down and, and getting better value. Um, used vehicles there are up uh, almost 50%. Um, Unreal. In the U.S., yeah. Crazy. Interesting yeah. stuff. Uh, thank yeah. you so much, James. I appreciate your time today. Yep. Thank you very much. You bet. That's James Hancock, who's Director of Business Development for Canadian Black Book. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.